Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whatever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today I bring you the theme of Thanksgiving and other nice things. Let's kick things off with a review over on Apple Podcasts. Over and Over by Jin Bonbon. The very best story podcast. The stories are varied and interesting. I have several story podcasts, but this one is far superior compared with the others. The voice is soothing, and you want to listen. I love the background info before the stories. I listen to this podcast over and over. I never get tired of the voice or the stories. It's the perfect podcast. Thank you so much to Jin Bonbon for the kind words, and with that review, I've got one more left to read on the show. So if you haven't reviewed stories of your and yours yet, get on that today, and I'll read your review here very shortly. Well, today is going to be a pretty short intro there, folks. I'm bringing you two stories from our friend William Sidney Porter, better known as O. Henry. O. Henry first appeared in the show back in episode 19 of season 1, and he's made some appearances since then as well. So if you want to get the background on O. Henry, such as when he started using that name, his time spent in jail, and more, check out episode 19 featuring the cop in the anthem and a retrieved reformation. Today's two stories were both originally featured in O. Henry's short story collection The Trimmed Lamp and Other Stories of the Four Million, which was published in 1907. You'll note that the first story is entitled Two Thanksgiving Day Gentlemen, and thus it concerns the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, but I think it holds up even if Thanksgiving is not a holiday that you celebrate. The second story, called The Last Leaf, does not revolve around any holiday, but it is a sweet story nonetheless that's fitting for a time of gratitude and reflection. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right into this week's presentation. Two Thanksgiving Day Gentlemen by O. Henry There is one day that is ours. There is one day when all we Americans who are not self-made go back to the old home to eat Salaritas biscuits and marvel how much nearer to the old porch the old pump looks than it used to. Bless the day. President Roosevelt gave it to us. We hear some talk of the Puritans, but don't just remember who they were. But we can lick them anyhow if they try to land again. Plymouth Rocks? Well, that sounds more familiar. Lots of us have had to come down to hens since the Turkey Trust got its work in. But somebody in Washington is leaking out advance information to him about these Thanksgiving proclamations. The big city east of the Cranberry Bogs has made Thanksgiving Day an institution. The last Thursday in November is the only day in the year on which it recognizes the part of America lying across the ferries. It is the one day that is purely American. Yes, a day of celebration exclusively American. And now for the story which is to prove to you that we have traditions on this side of the ocean that are becoming older at a much rapider rate than those of England are, thanks to our get-up and enterprise. Stuffy Pete took his seat on the third bench to the right as you enter Union Square from the east, at the walk opposite the fountain. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years he had taken his seat there promptly at one o'clock. For every time he had done so, things had happened to him. Charles Dickensy things that swelled his waistcoat above his heart, and equally on the other side. But today, Stuffy Pete's appearance at the annual trysting place seemed to have been rather the result of habit than of the yearly hunger which, as the philanthropists seem to think, afflicts the poor at such extended intervals. 
Certainly Pete was not hungry. He had just come from a feast that had left him of his powers barely of those of respiration and locomotion. His eyes were like two pale gooseberries, firmly embedded in a swollen and gravy-smeared mask of putty. His breath came in short wheezes. A senatorial roll of the disposed tissue denied a fashionable set to his upturned coat collar. Buttons that had been sewed upon his clothes by a kind salvation fingers a week before flew like popcorn, strewing the earth around him. Ragged he was, with a split shirt front open to the wishbone. But the November breeze carrying fine snowflakes brought him only a grateful coolness, for Stuffy Pete was overcharged with the caloric produced by a super-bountiful dinner, beginning with oysters and ending with plum pudding, and including, it seemed to him, all the roast turkey and baked potatoes and chicken salad and squash pie and ice cream in the world. Wherefore he sat, gorged, and gazed upon the world with after-dinner contempt. The meal had been an unexpected one. He was passing a red brick mansion near the beginning of Fifth Avenue, in which lived two old ladies of ancient family and a reverence for traditions. They even denied the existence of New York and believed that Thanksgiving Day was declared solely for Washington Square. One of their traditional habits was to station a servant at the postern gate with orders to admit the first hungry wayfarer that came along after the hour of noon had struck, and banquet him to a finish. Stuffy Pete happened to pass by on his way to the park, and the Seneschals gathered him in and upheld the custom of the castle. After Stuffy Pete had gazed straight before him for ten minutes, he was conscious of a desire for a more varied field of vision. With a tremendous effort, he moved his head slowly to the left, and then his eyes bulged out fearfully, and his breath ceased, and the rough-shod end of his short legs wriggled and rustled on the gravel, where the old gentleman was coming across Fourth Avenue toward his bench. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years, the old gentleman had come here and found Stuffy Pete on his bench. That was a thing that the old gentleman was trying to make a tradition of. Every Thanksgiving day for nine years, he had found Stuffy there, and had led him to a restaurant and watched him eat a big dinner. They do those things in England unconsciously. But this is a young country, and nine years is not so bad. The old gentleman was a staunch American patriot, and considered himself a pioneer in American tradition. In order to become picturesque, we must keep on doing one thing for a long time without ever letting it get away from us. Something like collecting the weekly dimes in industrial insurance, or cleaning the streets. The old gentleman moved, straight and stately, toward the institution that he was rearing. Surely the annual feeding of Stuffy Pete was nothing national in its character, such as the Magna Carta or Jam for Breakfast was in England, but it was a step. It was almost futile. It showed at least that a custom was not impossible in New <clears throat> in America. The old gentleman was thin and tall and sixty. He was dressed all in black and wore the old-fashioned kind of glasses that won't stay on your nose. His hair was whiter and thinner than it had been last year, and he seemed to make more use of his big, knobby cane with the crooked handle. As his established benefactor came up, Stuffy wheezed and shuddered like some woman's over-fat pug when a street dog bristles up at him. He would have flown, but all the skill of Santos Dumont could not have separated him from the bench. Well had the myrmidons of the two old ladies done their work. "'Good morning,' said the old gentleman. "'I am glad to perceive that the vicissitudes of another year have spared you to move in health about this beautiful world. For that blessing alone, this day of thanksgiving is well proclaimed to each of us. If you will come with me, my man, I will provide you with the dinner that should make your physical being accord with the mental. This is what the old gentleman said every time, every Thanksgiving day for nine years. 
The words themselves almost formed an institution. Nothing could be compared with them except the Declaration of Independence. Always before, they had been music to Stuffy's ears. But now he looked up at the old gentleman's face with tearful agony in his own. The fine snow almost sizzled when it fell upon his perspiring brow. But the old gentleman shivered a little and turned his back to the wind. Stuffy had always wondered why the old gentleman spoke his speech rather sadly. He did not know that it was because he was wishing every time that he had a son to succeed him. A son who would come there after he was gone. A son who would stand proud and strong before some subsequent Stuffy and say, In memory of my father. Then it would be an institution. But the old gentleman had no relatives. He lived in rented rooms in one of the decayed old family brownstone mansions in one of the quiet streets east of the park. In the winter he raised fuchsias in a little conservatory the size of a steamer trunk. In the spring he walked in the Easter parade. In the summer he lived in a farmhouse in the New Jersey hills and sat in a wicker armchair, speaking of a butterfly, the Ornithoptera amphrisius, that he hoped to find some day. In the autumn he fed Stuffy at dinner. These were the old gentleman's occupations. Stuffy Pete looked up at him for half a minute, stewing and helpless in his own self-pity. The old gentleman's eyes were bright with the giving pleasure. His face was getting more lined each year, but his little black necktie was in as jaunty a bow as ever, and the linen was beautiful and white, and his gray mustache was curled carefully at the ends, and then Stuffy made a noise that sounded like peas bubbling in a pot. Speech was intended, and as the old gentleman had heard the sounds nine times before, he rightly construed them into Stuffy's old formula of acceptance. Thank you, sir. I'll go with ye, and much obliged. I'm very hungry, sir. The coma of repletion had not prevented from entering Stuffy's mind the conviction that he was the basis of an institution. His Thanksgiving appetite was not his own. It belonged by all the sacred rites of established custom, if not by the actual statute of limitations, to this kind old gentleman who had preempted it. True, America is free, but in order to establish some tradition, someone must be a repetend, a repeating decimal. The heroes are not all heroes of steel and gold. See one here that wielded only weapons of iron, badly silvered, and tin. The old gentleman led his annual protege southward to the restaurant and to the table where the feast had always occurred. They were recognized. It comes the old guy, said a waiter, that treats that same bum to a meal every Thanksgiving. The old gentleman sat across the table, glowing like a smoked pearl at his cornerstone of future ancient tradition. The waiters heaped the table with holiday food, and Stuffy, with a sigh that was mistaken for hunger's expression, raised knife and fork and carved for himself a crown of imperishable bay. No more valiant hero ever fought his way through the ranks of an enemy. Turkey, chops, soups, vegetables, pies disappeared before him as fast as they could be served. Gorged nearly to the uttermost when he entered the restaurant, the smell of food had almost caused him to lose his honor as a gentleman but he rallied like a true knight. He saw the look of beneficent happiness in the old man's face, a happier look than even the fuchsias and the ornithoptera amphrisius had ever brought to it, and he had not the heart to see it wane. In an hour, Stuffy leaned back with a battle won. Thank you kindly, sir, he puffed like a leaky steam pipe. Thank you kindly for a hearty meal. Then he arose heavily with glazed eyes and started toward the kitchen. A waiter turned him about like a top and pointed him toward the door. The old gentleman carefully counted out a dollar thirty in silver change, leaving three nickels for the waiter. 
They parted as they did each year at the door, the old gentleman going south, Stuffy north. Around the first corner Stuffy turned and stood for one minute. Then he seemed to puff out his rags as an owl puffs out his feathers, and fell to the sidewalk like a sun-stricken horse. When the ambulance came, the young surgeon and the driver cursed softly at his weight. There was no smell of whiskey to justify a transfer to the patrol wagon, so Stuffy and his two dinners went to the hospital. There they stretched him out on a bed and began to test him for strange diseases, with the hope of getting a chance at some problem with the bare steel. And lo, an hour later, another ambulance brought the old gentleman, and they laid him on another bed and spoke of appendicitis, for he looked good for the bill. But pretty soon, one of the young doctors met one of the young nurses whose eyes he liked and stopped to chat with her about the cases. That nice old gentleman over there now, he said. You wouldn't think that was a case of almost starvation. Proud old family, I guess. He told me he hadn't eaten a thing for three days. The Last Leaf by O. Henry In a little district west of Washington Square, the streets have run crazy and broken themselves into small strips called places. These places make strange angles and curves. One street crosses itself a time or two. An artist once discovered a valuable possibility in this street. Suppose a collector with a bill for paints, paper, and canvas should, in traversing this route, suddenly meet himself coming back without a cent having been paid on account. So to quaint old Greenwich Village the art people soon came prowling, hunting for north windows and eighteenth-century gables and Dutch attics and low rents. They imported some pewter mugs and a chafing dish or two from Sixth Avenue and became a colony. At the top of a squatty three-story brick, Sue and Johnsy had their studio— Johnsy was a familiar for a Joanna. One was from Maine, the other from California. They had met at the table d'hote of an 8th Street Delmonico's and found their tastes in art, chicory salad, and bishop sleeves so congenial that the joint studio resulted. That was in May. In November, a cold, unseen stranger whom the doctors called pneumonia stalked about the colony, touching one here and one there with his icy fingers. Over on the east side, this ravager strode boldly, smiting his victims by scores, but his feet trod slowly through the maze and narrow and moss-grown places. Mr. Pneumonia was not what you would call a chivalric old gentleman. A mite of a little woman, with blood thinned by California's affairs, was hardly fair game for the red-fisted, short-breathed old duffer. But Johnsy he smote, and she lay, scarcely moving, on her painted iron bedstead, looking through the small Dutch window-panes at the blank side of the next brick house. One morning, the busy doctor invited Sue into the hallway with a shaggy gray eyebrow. "'She has one chance in, let us say, ten, he said, as he shook down the mercury in his clinical thermometer. "'And that chance is for her to want to live. This way people have of lining up on the side of the undertaker makes the entire pharmacopoeia look silly. Your little lady has made up her mind that she's not going to get well. Has she anything on her mind?' "'She—' She wanted to paint the Bay of Naples some day, said Sue. Paint? Bosh! Has she anything on her mind worth thinking twice? Uh, a man, for instance. 
A man, said Sue, with a Jew's harp twang in her voice, is a man worth... But no, doctor, there is nothing of the kind. Well, it is the weakness, then, said the doctor. I will do all that science, so far as it may filter through my efforts, can accomplish. But whenever my patient begins to count the carriages in her funeral possession, I subtract fifty percent from the curative power of medicines. If you will get her to ask one question about the new winter styles in cloak sleeves, I will promise you a one in five chance for her instead of one in ten. After the doctor had gone, Sue went into the workroom and cried a Japanese napkin to a pulp. Then she swaggered into Johnsy's room with her drawing board, whistling ragtime. Johnsy lay, scarcely making a ripple under the bedclothes, with her face toward the window. Sue stopped whistling, thinking she was asleep. She arranged her board and began a pen and ink drawing to illustrate a magazine story. Young artists must pave their way to art by drawing pictures for magazine stories that young authors write to pave their way to literature. As Sue was sketching a pair of elegant horse-show riding trousers on a monocle of the figure of the hero, an Idaho cowboy, she heard a low sound several times repeated. She went quickly to the bedside. Johnsy's eyes were wide open. She was looking out the window and counting, counting backward. Twelve, she said, and a little later, eleven, and then ten, then nine, and then eight, and seven, almost together. Sue looked solicitously out the window. What was there to count? There was only a bare, dreary yard to be seen, and the blank side of the brick house twenty feet away. An old, old ivy vine, gnarled and decayed at the roots, climbed halfway up the brick wall. The cold breath of autumn had stricken its leaves from the vine until its skeleton branches clung almost bare to the crumbling bricks. "'What is it, dear?' Six, said Johnsy, almost in a whisper. "'They're falling faster now. Three days ago there were almost a hundred. It made my headache to count them, but now it's easy. There goes another one. There are only five left now.' Five what, dear? Tell your sooty.' "'Leaves on the ivy vine. When the last one falls, I must go too. I've known that for three days. Didn't the doctor tell you?' "'Oh, I have never heard of such nonsense,' complained Sue, with magnificent scorn. "'What have old ivy leaves to do with your getting well? "'And you used to love that vine so, you naughty girl. "'Don't be a goosey. "'Why, the doctor told me this morning that your chances for getting well real soon were... Uh, "'Let's see exactly what he said. Uh, "'He said the chances were ten to one. "'Why, that's almost as good a chance as we have in New York "'when we ride on the streetcars or walk past a new building.' Try to take some broth now and let Sooty go back to her drawing so she can sell the editor man with it, and buy port wine for her sick child, and pork chops for her greedy self. You needn't get any more wine, said Johnsy, keeping her eyes fixed out the window. There goes another. No, I don't want any broth. That leaves just four. I want to see the last one fall, before it gets dark. Then I'll go too. Johnsy, dear, said Sue, bending over her, will you promise me to keep your eyes closed? and not look out the window until I'm done working. I must hand those drawings in by tomorrow. I need the light, or else I would draw the shade down. Couldn't you draw in the other room? asked Johnsy, coldly. I'd rather be here by you, said Sue. Besides, I don't want you looking at those silly ivy leaves. Tell me as soon as you've finished, said Johnsy, closing her eyes, and lying white and still as a fallen statue. Because I want to see the last one fall. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of thinking. I want to turn loose my hold on everything and go sailing down, down, just like one of those poor, 
tired leaves. Try to sleep, said Sue. I must call Behrman up to be my model for the old hermit miner. I'll not be gone a minute. Don't try to move till I come back. Old Behrman was a painter who lived on the ground floor beneath them. He was past sixty and had a Michelangelo's Moses beard curling down from the head of a satyr along with the body of an imp. Behrman was a failure in art. Forty years he had wielded the brush without getting near enough to touch the hem of his mistress's robe. He had been always about to paint a masterpiece, but had never yet begun it. For several years he had painted nothing except now and then a daub in the line of commerce or advertising. He earned a little by serving as a model to those young artists in the colony who could not pay the price of a professional. He drank gin to excess and still talked of his coming masterpiece. For the rest he was a fierce little old man who scoffed terribly at softness in anyone and who regarded himself as a special mastiff in waiting to protect the two young artists in the studio above. Sue found Behrman smelling strongly of juniper berries in his dimly lighted den below. In one corner was a blank canvas on an easel that had been waiting there for twenty-five years to receive the first line of the masterpiece. She told him of Johnsy's fancy and how she feared she would indeed, light and fragile as a leaf herself, float away when her slight hold upon the world grew weaker. Old Behrman, with his red eyes plainly streaming, shouted his contempt and derision for such idiotic imaginings. "'Fuss!' he cried. Is there people in the world make the foolishness to die because the leaves they drop off from the confounded vine? I have not heard of such a thing. No, I will not pose as your model for your fool hermit dunderhead. Why do you allow that silly business to come in the brain of her? Ach, that poor little Miss Yonzi. She is very ill and weak, said Sue, and the fever has left her mind morbid and full of strange fancies. Very well, Mr. Behrman, if you do not care to pose for me, you needn't. But I think you are a horrid old... Old flibberty gibbet. You are just like a woman, yelled Behrman. Who said I will not pause? Go on, I come meet you. For half an hour I have been trying to say that I am ready to pause. Gah, this is not any place in which one so good as Miss Yonzi shall lie sick. Some day I will paint a masterpiece, and ye shall all go away. Ah, yes. Johnsy was sleeping when they went upstairs. Sue pulled the shade down to the windowsill and motioned Behrman into the other room. In there they peered out the window fearfully at the ivy vine. Then they looked at each other for a moment, without speaking. A persistent cold rain was falling, mingled with snow. Behrman, in his old blue shirt, took his seat as the hermit miner on an upturned kettle for a rock. When Sue awoke from an hour's sleep the next morning, she found Johnsy with dull, wide-open eyes, staring at the drawn green shade. "'Pull it up. I want to see,' she ordered in a whisper. Wearily, Sue obeyed. But lo, after the beating rain and the fierce gusts of wind that had endured through the live-long night, there yet stood out against the brick wall one ivy leaf. It was the last one on the vine, still dark green near its stem, with its serrated edges tinted with the yellow of dissolution and decay, it hung bravely from the branch some twenty feet above the ground. "'It is the last one,' said Johnsy. "'I thought it would surely fall during the night. I heard the wind.' It will fall today, and I shall die at the same time. Dear, dear, said Sue, leaning her worn face down to the pillow. Think of me if you won't think of yourself. What would I do? But Johnsy did not answer. The lonesomest thing in all the world is a soul when it is making ready to go on its mysterious far journey. The fancy seemed to possess her more strongly as one by one the ties that bound her friendship and to earth were loosed. The day wore away and even through the twilight they could see the lone ivy leaf 
clinging to its stem against the wall. And then, with the coming of the night, the north wind was again loosed, while the rain still beat against the windows and pattered down from the low Dutch eaves. When it was light enough, John Z the Merciless commanded that the shade be raised. The ivy leaf was still there. John Z lay for a long time looking at it, and then she called to Sue, who was stirring her chicken broth over the gas stove. I've been a bad girl, Sooty, said John Z. Something has made that last leaf stay there to show me how wicked I was. It is a sin to want to die. You may bring me a little broth now, and some milk with a little port in it, and... No, bring me a hand mirror first, and then pack some pillows about me, and I will sit up and watch you cook. And an hour later she said, Sooty, some day I hope to paint the Bay of Naples. The doctor came in the afternoon, and Sue had an excuse to go to the hallway as he left. Even chances said the doctor, taking Sue's thin, shaking hand in his. With good nursing, you'll win. And now I must see another case I have downstairs. A bearman, his name is. Some kind of an artist, I believe. Pneumonia, too. He is an old, weak man, and the attack is acute. There is no hope for him. But he goes to the hospital today to be made more comfortable. The next day, the doctor said to Sue, She's out of danger. You won. Nutrition and care now, that's all. And that afternoon, Sue came to the bed where Johnsy lay, contentedly knitting a very blue and very useless woolen shoulder scarf, and put one arm around her, pillows and all. "'I have something to tell you, White Mouse,' she said. "'Mr. Behrman died of pneumonia today in the hospital. He was ill only two days. The janitor found him the morning of the first day in his room downstairs, helpless with pain. His shoes and clothing were wet through and icy cold. They couldn't imagine where he had been on such a dreadful night.' Then they found a lantern, still lighted, and a ladder that had been dragged from its place, and some scattered bushes, and a pallet with green and yellow colors mixed on it, and... A look out the window, dear, at the last ivy leaf on the wall. Didn't you wonder why it never fluttered or moved when the wind blew? Ah, darling, it is Behrman's masterpiece. He painted it there, the night the last leaf fell. Stories of Your and Yours is a one-man show, but I couldn't do it without you. If you want to help out the show and spread the word, you can follow the show and share posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the same handle everywhere, at Podcast. If you want to support the show financially, you can visit Patreon at patreon.com slash syypodcast, and you'll see all the bonus content and branded merchandise available there for patrons. Being a patron is extremely helpful in covering the costs of distributing the show, and it'll help with important equipment and studio upgrades, plus putting together a website. Above all, though, thank you for being a listener. I want to wish a happy Thanksgiving to all of you who celebrate the holiday. I hope you all have a fantastic time in your festivities. I'm grateful as ever for each and every one of you who takes the time to download, to listen, to leave a review, to reach out via email or social media, and of course especially for my wonderful patrons who support the show over at patreon.com slash syypodcast. Thank you one and thank you all. Oh, and speaking of the Patreon, I just released some bonus content last Wednesday. That's the feature that I mentioned a while back called Simply Stories. In that installment, I did a story called Shredney Vashtar by H. H. Monroe, who's also known as Saki. That's just one of the several bonus episodes that are currently available to patrons of all levels. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. 
For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next time on the show, I'll be bringing you a request from a patron who might not even realize that he made the request. A bit cryptic, perhaps, but make sure you're tuned in because you won't want to miss this one. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com. 